Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the Season 4 Special. As with Season 3 Special, this story will take on the form of a two-part series. There's a ridiculous amount of information to get through and one episode, it just wouldn't have done the case justice. To be honest, even having two episodes for this villain is barely going to scratch the surface. Some people aren't keen on two-part episodes, but seeing as it is an end-of-season special, they usually take on the form of a two-parter. I'm sure you'll forgive me. This two-part series focuses on the life and crimes of one of Britain's most evil and notorious serial killers. In this first episode, I will discuss the early life and background of this story's villain. Next week, in part two, I will discuss the tragic events that led to said villain becoming infamous in the UK. If you'd prefer to listen to the whole thing at once, it might be wise to skip this week's episode so that you can binge both in one go when part two is out next week. I don't often give content warnings on my show, as you know, as it is a true crime podcast. What do you expect, right? But this story, as with the season three special, I feel warrants a content warning. This case contains graphic details of domestic abuse, drug use, paedophilia, abduction, rape and murder that some listeners may find highly upsetting and disturbing. You have been warned. As always, before we begin, let's break the ice with this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. That was the jingle for Daddy Facts. This opening icebreaker segment involves me reading a random dad fact from a pack of cards my daughter got me a few years ago. It's facts that every dad should know. Should I know them all? In theory, yes. Do I? Absolutely not. Here is this week's fact. Applying a good beard oil every night will help keep your beard soft and shiny. Choose one with added essential oils to keep it smelling fragrant. I've not got much of a beard, as you can tell. It's more of a fashionable stubble kind of thing. I've never used beard oil. If I had a beard, I would. To keep it smelling fragrant. Who goes around smelling beards? I wonder what essential oils. Aloe vera, perhaps? Answers on a postcard, please. (laughs) Now, usually, we'll move on from that shite. Usually, at this point, the show's formula would go into some history about where the story's events took place. Given the sheer volume of information that we need to get through, I'm going to give that section of the show a miss for both parts of this season's special. The story takes place in and around London. Unfortunately, that's all you're getting. This case was suggested by listener Sarah Yates. Sarah reached out to me via email at britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com and asked me to cover this case. I was initially going to cover the case for the season 4 finale, but like I said earlier, one episode just would not have done it justice. Sarah said, Loving your podcast and love the tangents you go off on. That's contrary to a recent YouTube commenter who said that no one likes my tangents and I should change my whole style. (laughs) It's a very easy listening podcast covering something I also have a morbid curiosity about. I just wanted to suggest Levi Belfield who killed Millie Dowler and some others. I thought that might be an interesting case. Keep up the fab work. Thanks for that, Sarah. As a reminder, this entire fourth season was made up of listener-suggested cases. 
Season 5's episode list is also full of cases suggested by listeners, and Season 6 is filling up nicely. It's about halfway filled, that one now. Please get in touch if you want me to cover a case and get a shout-out for your efforts. Without further ado, let me finally introduce the despicable villain of this story. His birth name was Levi Rebetz, though he currently goes by Yusuf Rahim after converting to Islam in prison in early 2016. If neither of those names sound familiar, perhaps you know this story's villain by his former name, mentioned in Sarah's email, Levi Belfield. Born in Isleworth, West London, on May 17th, 1968, Levi's heritage is that of a traveller. I don't mean someone who travels the world taking in other people's cultures, by the way. I mean the travelling community. Those who traditionally have a nomadic way of life. Levi was born to motor mechanic Joseph Rebetz, whose surname he took, and Jean Belfield, whose surname he would later adopt. Both of Levi's parents were travellers, and they married in the 1950s. The couple's first child arrived in 1961, with the birth of Levi's older brother Richard. Then came two girls, Lindy and Cheryl, the former known affectionately as Lindy Lou. Levi was then born, and the family was complete. It wasn't just Joseph and Jean who had traveller connections, though. The Brazil family is one of the most well-known gypsy families in southwest London, and during their heyday in the 50s and 60s, they were well respected. As it turns out, Levi's uncle was a member of the Brazil family, and Levi was treated as one of them as a result. To say Levi was a mummy's boy and the golden child would be a huge understatement. Jean Belfield absolutely adored her youngest son. As a young child, Levi attended the now-closed Crane Junior School in Hounslow. The community primary school closed on September 1st, 2001, after merging with another school. So far, so normal, right? That's about to change. During his time at Crane, Levi was ferociously protected by his mum at all costs. If she so much as heard a whisper of kids wanting to bully her precious Levi, she would be immediately on the case. Now for the weird part. Levi would later claim in his adult years that his mum used to wipe his ass until he was 12 years old. I'll just let that sink in for a second. The closeness between Levi and his mum only grew when Levi's father sadly passed away at the young age of 37. Joseph's death in 1976 was the result of a sudden heart attack and his widow didn't waste any time in changing her name back to Belfield. Despite never marrying, two years after Joseph's death, Jean started seeing a man named Johnny Lee. My sources indicate the pair remain together to this day, though they never did get married. When the once short and scrawny Levi entered his teenage years, he religiously took steroids in an attempt to build up his physique and appear more intimidating. The drug definitely worked, as they tend to do, because he eventually grew to be six foot one and he ballooned up to around 20 stone in weight. Roughly 280 pounds or 127 kilograms. He turned into a big old boy. Perhaps as a direct result of losing his father at the tender age of eight, Levi's attitude towards women became increasingly hateful as he grew older. What I mean by that is, Levi's mother was the domineering parent, and if his father would have been there to guide him through puberty, who knows where he'd be now. Perhaps many lives would have been saved. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Close to Levi's home in Isleworth was an all-girls school called Gumley House. Gumley House is a Catholic school for girls that ensures the education received has Christ at the centre. Most Catholic schools do, I imagine. Levi was obsessed with Gumley House and often attempted to engage in lewd conversations with its students once they'd been dismissed for the day. He did the same with any girl he spotted in his local area, to be fair. He preyed on them. He stalked them from the shadows and pounced when he felt the timing was right. At the age of 12, Levi was now, in theory, wiping his own bum and attending Feltham Comprehensive School. Often referred to as simply the Feltham School and now known as Springwest Academy, it formed in the 1960s when Tudor Grammar, De Brome Boys School and Lafone Girls School amalgamated. Another pupil at Feltham was a 14-year-old girl named Patsy Morris, whose family had moved down to Isleworth from Birmingham after her father George retired from the army. Not long after starting a first term at Feltham in the back end of 1979, Patsy met Levi Belfield. The two became friends, and if the rumours are to be believed, they also dated for a period. But why am I telling you about Levi's first proper interactions with a girl at school? It's because in the summer of the following year, Patsy Morris disappeared. Patsy never returned from her lunch break on June 16, 1980, and her body was found two days later on Hounslow Heath, a local nature reserve. The cause of death was strangulation, and evidence indicated that a ligature had been used to carry out the attack. But there was no evidence of a sexual assault. To this day, the case remains unsolved, and nobody knows for sure who killed Patsy Morris. Perhaps more disturbingly, nobody knows why. The case is no longer active due to a lack of new leads, though George Morris is positive the killer could have been Levi Belfield. In July 1980, not long after being informed of the discovery of his daughter's body, George Morris received a phone call from someone he believed was a teenage boy. The caller simply said, I'm going to kill you, before hanging up. George has since said, It was a local male voice, and it was very strange. He's a local man, which makes me think it could be him. It's terrifying to think that someone of 12 or 13 could have done it. Scottish serial killer Peter Tobin, whose story I covered in Season 1, Episode 3 of British Murders, was also linked to Patsy's murder during Operation Anagram, but nothing came of it. Bringing the story back to Levi Belfield, he ended up leaving school in 1984 at the age of 16 with zero qualifications. The hulking figure with the squeaky voice would have to resort to more illicit activities as a means of earning money. Levi had his fingers in many money-making pies. He would act as an enforcer for his friends, ensuring their safety at all times. He would source and deal drugs such as cocaine, weed, ecstasy all while having a little dabble himself. He also bought and sold cars, something which would come in handy in his later years. It won't surprise you to hear that Levi's first dealings with law enforcement came at an early age. In April 1982, a couple of years before leaving school, Levi was convicted of two counts of burglary and theft. His next conviction came in December 1985. The then 17-year-old had learned to drive and soon resorted to stealing cars. No surprises when I tell you the conviction was for three counts of taking a motor vehicle or other conveyance without authority. 
Levi's next interaction with law enforcement came the following year. After being bailed for another driving offence, he was on the police's radar again in November 1986 after failing to surrender to the court. In March 1987, four years later, Levi was convicted on three new accounts of taking a motor vehicle or other conveyance without authority. This was a young man who clearly felt himself to be above the law and wasn't learning from his actions. Rather than changing his ways and becoming a law-abiding citizen like Gerard Butler, Levi went the other route and felt it more appropriate to try and confuse the police in case he cropped up on their radar again. He developed a series of aliases. Such creative names included Liam Rebetz, Leroy Belfry and Levi Smith. To be fair, he didn't only use names close to his own. David Bennett, Gavin Mercer and Troy Nugent were a few examples of the names also used by Belfield. If someone feels the need to have several aliases, then you just know they're a rotter. A month after turning 20, Levi received his most serious conviction to date. He was convicted in June 1988 of possession of an offensive weapon. By this point in his life, it's clear to see that Levi Belfield was only growing more and more confident in his criminal career and things were starting to escalate. What better time in the story to introduce the first of three women who would go on to suffer at the hands of Levi Belfield for decades. The first of these women is named Rebecca Wilkinson. In September 1989, the then 17-year-old met 21-year-old Levi Belfield in the Oxford Arms in Hanworth, Feltham, where she was working as a barmaid. Rebecca, or Becky as she was affectionately known, was the mother of a six-month-old daughter born in March 1989 to her first real boyfriend. Her job at the Oxford Arms was therefore more out of necessity than desire. Levi used his natural charm and waved his money around in an attempt to lure Becky into his clutches. It worked. As you'd expect though, Levi's charm was all a front and didn't last long. Within only a few months, Becky was once again pregnant and Levi was nowhere to be seen. Where had he gone? Great Yarmouth. For context, that's a seaside town that sits around 160 miles northeast of Feltham in the county of Norfolk. But why on earth was he in Alan Partridge's stomping grounds? To escape the long arm of the law, of course. In July 1990, Levi was due to be convicted for using a fraudulent tax disc on one of his many cars. He also once more failed to surrender to the court whilst on bail for the offence. The following month in August 1990, a five-month pregnant Becky Wilkinson was moved to a three-bedroom council house in order to make her life a tad more manageable. Levi would come and go as he pleased and disappear for days and sometimes even weeks at a time. He wasn't even present for the birth of the couple's daughter and refused to take her to the hospital when she went into labour. Worse still, a couple of days after returning home with their daughter, Becky was kicked down the stairs by Levi. That was the start of regular physical beatings by Levi, who was also regularly sleeping with other women in Becky's home while she was out running errands. Levi's law dodging ended in January 1991 when the police raided Becky's house and arrested him. The charge this time was causing actual bodily harm and Levi was immediately sentenced to three months in prison. 
The three months ended up being five in the end, as Levi was released from prison in July 1991. Becky had been visiting Levi every two weeks, as he demanded, and she was even forced to move in with his sister during his imprisonment so that he could keep a better eye on her, as he put it. Once released, Levi allowed Becky to move back into a council house, but she wasn't allowed to leave unsupervised. Police were frequent visitors to the property on the back of complaints from concerned neighbours, but charming Levi would always reassure them that Becky was not being physically harmed by him, and they would leave it at that. Worse still, Levi demanded sex from Becky whenever he felt like it, and if she ever answered back or refused, he would simply hold her down and rape her. Becky endured Levi's torturous ways for almost three whole years before finally reporting him to the police in June 1992. A 36-page statement was made by Becky after Levi had once again raped her, only this time it was at knife point. What happened next shows just how scared of Levi Becky must have been. She ended up withdrawing the charges and Levi was once again let off the hook. Even moving out of the council house and the involvement of the police didn't stop Levi Belfield. Instead, he tracked down Becky to her new digs, waited in the shadows until she arrived home, and you guessed it, raped her once more. He said he was teaching her a lesson. In total, Becky was violently abused both physically and mentally by Levi Belfield for a total of 15 years, until his arrest on suspicion of murder in November 2004. Becky gave birth to a total of four children at the hands of Levi Belfield. Now, as well as buying and selling vehicles and drug dealing, Levi was also a nightclub doorman. What better place to sell drugs and creep on young girls than a nightclub queue? He was well known as both a jovial character with a rude sense of humour and a violent bouncer with an incredibly short fuse. Sometimes he would create a fight out of nothing simply to allow himself to beat up the male customers, often by using brass knuckles that he kept in the glove box of whichever car he was using on that particular evening. Despite flirting with every young woman he came into contact with, the truth is that Levi Belfield had little to no time for women in general. He saw them as playthings that didn't deserve to be treated as human beings. Levi once said, You feed them. You keep them, you can do what you want with them, they are no more than pet dogs. What a charmer. The next female in Levi's life was 23-year-old Joanna Collings. After breaking up with her boyfriend one night at a club he was working at in early 1995, Levi comforted Joanna and the pair soon became an item. Levi moved in with her and her mother almost immediately. Soon after the pair started living together... Joanna fell pregnant. It was only when Levi learned of this news that he became suddenly violent. He would kick and punch Joanna right up until the birth of their daughter in February 1996. The abuse continued after the birth and, as with Becky Wilkinson, Joanna Collins was also regularly raped by Levi. Despite having lit cigarettes put out on her, being hit with pool cues and being thrown down the stairs... Joanna didn't report Levi's attacks for fear of her and her daughter's life. What's truly upsetting is that on top of all the abuse, Joanna and Becky were not only aware of each other's existence, but they both knew that Levi was sleeping not only with them both, but with numerous other women as well. 
How fucked up is this? Becky Wilkinson's second child to Levi Belfield, another daughter, was born just before he started his relationship with Joanna Collings. He was also sleeping with one of Becky's friends at the same time, by the way. Becky's third child to Levi, a daughter again, was then born after he started his relationship with Joanna. Joanna then had her first child to Levi shortly before Becky had a fourth daughter to him. That was followed by Joanna having a son to Levi after he'd already started a new relationship with another woman named Emma Mills. If you're keeping score, by the time Levi started his relationship with Emma Mills in 1996, he had five daughters to two women, followed by the birth of his first son to Joanna Collins in July 1997, bringing his running total to six children. He'll almost double that by the time this story finishes. Before I tell the story of Levi's relationship with Emma Mills, it's crucial to tell you about a series of events that happened in Strawberry Hill, West London. That was where Joanna Collings and her mother lived. An isolated footpath is located at the bottom of the garden and runs between two railway stations. The 600-yard path is dimly lit, especially at night, and it's a popular cut-through for dog walkers and school kids alike. Levi, who would often request Joanna dress up as a schoolgirl in the bedroom, once confessed to her in late 1996 that his late-night walks had a more sinister intent. Breaking down in floods of tears, Levi told Joanna how he would lie in wait on the footpath late at night and wait for young girls to walk past. Unseen in the darkness, Levi would fantasise about attacking one of the unsuspecting schoolgirls that walked past on their own. Despite his confession, Joanna opted not to inform the police, or her mother for that matter. Other confessions from Levi include the time he told Joanna he had lifted a disabled girl out of her wheelchair and raped her on the bonnet of a car in a nightclub car park. He also claimed to have raped another girl after giving her a lift home. He also kept a three-quarter length jacket in the garage of Joanna's home with a custom-made pocket, like sewn into it. The pocket housed an almost 10-inch long kitchen knife as well as a balaclava. Joanna also found what she would in later years describe as being a rape kit. Bringing the story back to Emma Jane Mills, she was Levi's latest female conquest after they met in 1996. The timid and well-spoken Emma was infatuated with Levi's steroid-built frame and charm. By that point, things were escalating at such speed that Levi now not only carried brass knuckles with him, but a baseball bat and a knife too. His drug dealing moved on from party drugs to heroin, and he was frequently taking it himself. In late 1997, Emma and Levi were living together in Manor Road, Twickenham, a town in West London. Emma was already pregnant by then, and would go on to have a daughter to Levi shortly before Christmas 1997. Imagine the mind games and psychological torture of three women all having kids with the same violent man. Picking up each other's kids from various houses, seeing Levi out with each of them, it must have been incredibly upsetting for Becky, Joanna and Emma. The first time Emma was physically harmed by Levi was after she saw him leaving a pub with Joanna. Emma had been asked to collect Levi and had no idea he'd been out with his ex-girlfriend. How evil is that? After refusing to wind the window down, Emma watched Levi walk around to the passenger door of a car, let himself in, 
and he then repeatedly punched Emma in the face, while saying, Do as you're fucking told. Later that night, Joanna was forced to accompany Emma to the hospital, though the bruises were ultimately blamed on a fictitious group of girls rather than on Levi. Levi was again arrested for possessing an offensive weapon in March 1998. On that occasion, it related to the baseball bat he drove around with everywhere. He eventually progressed into the buying and selling of illegal firearms and used the homes of his girlfriends and his children to hide them. By the time Levi turned 31, Emma Mills was already pregnant with their second child, Levi's eighth overall. I say eighth overall, those are only the children he either acknowledged or was aware of. You might think that Levi might slow down at this point. Far from it, dear listener. If anything, he sped up and was only getting worse. He regularly drove around in a van with a mattress in the back and blacked out windows. Under the guise of giving them a lift home, Levi would offer numerous young girls a drink spiked with GHB and rape them in the back of his people carrier. Sometimes he would even get his mates involved and let them take advantage of the girls as well. I did tell you this story was sickening. We haven't even gotten to the main crimes yet, that's what's worrying. Another scene Levi was heavily involved in was the West London paedophile scene. There's rumours that he was close with, or at the bare minimum had spoken with, notorious UK paedophile Victor Kelly, better known on the streets as Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe was more than well known to the police for grooming underage girls, plying them with drugs and forcing them to have sex with him. He was sentenced in the mid-2000s for grooming a child for sexual purposes, the indecent assault of a child, supplying cocaine to a child, offering to supply cocaine to a child and for raping a 10-year-old girl as well as her teenage sister. He was put on the sex offenders register for life and banned from being alone with children or telephoning them or texting them. It's more than likely that Levi Belfield and Victor Kelly crossed paths somewhere, especially given Levi's passion for spiking girls with drugs and boasting about his exploits with young teenagers. By autumn of 2000, Levi and Emma Mills had moved into 11 Little Bente. If you look at the house on Google Maps, you'll see that the M4 motorway is right behind it, and there appears to be a woodland area right next to it too. Add to that the fact the road sits on a cul-de-sac and you've got the perfect getaway house. Plenty of nooks and crannies to squeeze through should the police come knocking. Emma made the brave decision to take her children to a women's refuge in July 2001, but by October that same year, Levi had wormed his way back into Emma's good books with promises of changing. He was, of course, lying through his teeth. On the evening of October 15, 2001, Levi attempted to snatch a young 17-year-old girl named Anna Marie Rennie after pulling up nearer in a Ford Mondeo and engaging in a brief conversation. As Anna Marie went on her way, Levi rushed from behind, grabbed her, lifted her up off the ground and basically tried to bear hug her back to the car. Luckily, Anna Marie managed to wriggle free and escaped into the nearby woods. She reported the crime three days later, but the police's search came up empty. Anna Marie could only remember the first part of the car's license plate, and even then, she wasn't sure it was right. It would be three and a half long years before Levi Belfield was officially charged with the attempted abduction of Anna Marie Rennie. It was during those same three and a half years that Levi Belfield 
made his final progression from rape and assault to cold-blooded murder. And that concludes the end of part one regarding the story of bus stop killer Levi Belfield. Next week, in part two, I will be discussing the details of all three known murders committed by Levi and the numerous court cases that followed. Thanks again to Sarah Yates for suggesting this case. Special thanks also to Jeffrey Wansell, author of The Bus Stop Killer, Millie Dowler, Her Murder and the Full Story of the Sadistic Serial Killer Levi Belfield, which was released in 2011. A lot of the details told in this episode have come directly from Jeffrey's dedicated research into this case, and I'd like to encourage everyone to give that book a read if you want to learn more about it. I've added a link to the book in the episode description if you're interested in giving it a read. I've got no new reviews to read out this week, but suppose you'd like to leave one of the show and have it read out on a future episode. You can do that on iTunes, Podchaser, Facebook, or Good Pods if you have the app. All reviews help increase the show's exposure and they are greatly appreciated. Each month you can support British Murders by joining my Patreon. Simply visit patreon.com slash britishmurders. You'll get early access to episodes, they'll also be ad-free, and all my scripts are on there too. If you prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Merchandise, like the hoodie I'm wearing right now, is available to purchase at Teespring. The link is in the episode description. I don't make profit off the merch, I just want people to wear my swag. And for more on British murders, please check out all my social media channels and YouTube. I'm active on all of them, mainly Twitter and Instagram for like messages on stuff like that, but TikTok I do, but I don't really do podcast stuff on TikTok, but feel free to check it out. And please continue emailing your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or just hit me up on social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, you'll also get a shout out. How good is that? <laughs> but that's it for now, guys. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.